Hello and welcome to the My VA Dayton podcast coming to you from Dayton, Ohio. This is the show where we talk with veterans in the Western Ohio region to share their stories and share what's happening at the Dayton VA Medical Center. I'm Scott Lease, your host with co-host Greg Tucker. And we have with us today Air Force veteran retired Lieutenant General Dick Reynolds. Great to have you with us today, General. Thank you, Scott. Just a little background about the general. He is uh, recently honored with the 70th recipient of the region's 2021 Citizen Legion of Honor Award from the President's Club of the Dayton, uh, of the Club of Dayton, actually, in uh, 2021. An award which goes to citizens who have demonstrated servant leadership. That's a that's a great honor. Uh, the general has had a. a great impact on the local area, most notably for his work as a principal fundraiser for the Wright-Patterson-Fisher Houses and the Dayton VA Medical Center Campus Fisher House. Uh, he is also past president and board chair of the Air Force Museum Foundation and has raised funds for $39 million uh, for the fourth hangar of the National Air Force Museum. Uh, graduating in 1971 from the U.S. Air Force Academy, his military career accomplishments include commanding the Aeronautical Systems Center at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, right here in Ohio, right here in Dayton, Ohio, as a matter of fact, and the Air Force Test Center at Edwards Air Force Base in California. He was also program executive, airlift and trainers in the Pentagon, and program director for several major weapons systems acquisitions, including the B-2 Spirit. General Reynolds is a graduate of the U.S. Air Force uh, Test Pilot School and has more than 25 years of hands-on experience in research, development, program management, test, and evaluation of aeronautical systems. He holds Federal Aviation Administration certificates for airline transport pilot and flight instructor, and his logbook shows more than 4,000 flying hours in 70 different military and civilian aircraft. He retired from the Air Force in 2005 after more than 34 years of active duty service. Again, welcome General Reynolds. Thank you. Uh, great resume, uh, lots, yeah. of, lots of information there to cover. Uh, but before we uh, get uh, to know you a little bit better and find out what you're doing in the area today, we're gonna put you to the test. Okay. That's right, it's time to play Don't Tell Me, I Think I Know That. Are you ready for this, General? I'm ready. Okay, this is the game where we put our guests to the test of their knowledge of military trivia. It's also a game where our listeners can play along to see if their minds are mired in mounds of military minutia like ours are. Are you ready to take the challenge? I'm ready. Okay, General, here's your first question. What sort of pilots become test pilots? Would it be A, anyone willing to risk their lives... B, only suicidal fools. C, pilots able to pat their heads while rubbing their tummies. Or the ones with the right stuff. Well, I'd have to say D, the ones with the right stuff. That's but, right. Uh, the right stuff includes uh, uh, engineering uh, degrees and uh, enough flying hours as pilot in command. Yeah, what does it take to become a uh, Air Force test pilot these days? Well, I'm not sure I can quote the exact uh, requirements today, but uh, when I applied, you needed to have a, uh, a bachelor's degree in uh, in engineering or or science or math, uh, and you had to have 1,500 hours of pilot in command time, 
that means uh, you're not a co-pilot or a first officer. You're actually the aircraft commander. And that could be in a single-seat fighter or a multi-crewed uh, airplane. And yeah. so if you were going to talk to a young kid uh, with aspirations to be a test pilot, to be the next uh, Dick Reynolds or Chuck Yeager or some other famous fighter jock uh, testing the newest aircraft, what would you recommend to them? Well, I'd say first and foremost, uh, you know, study hard in school, uh, do well in your, your academic pursuits. You've got to have that technical degree, which is uh, an important uh, yeah, I mean, that's a disqualifier if you don't have it. And, uh, and then accumulate uh, as much flying time as you can. All right. Fantastic answer. So uh, here's your next question. Um, when you're about to attack, while well, you're in your aircraft, uh, you should keep the sun in which direction from the plane? Would it be in, you, in front of you, to your left, behind you, or to the rear? Uh, you probably want the sun to the rear so that anybody that's trying to shoot you down has got to look at the sun. That's right. All right. Okay, and here's your final question. You're doing great so far. Two out of two. Uh, G-force refers to what? Would it be the ability a fighter jock exhibits while playing cred at the Oak Club on a Friday night? Uh, a Jedi war plane trick? The force is a pilot uh, endures during high-speed maneuvering? or a warp speed capability? Well, it'd be C, it'd be the forces that uh, a pilot uh, or a crew member, any crew member uh, endures uh, during maneuvering. And it doesn't have to be high speed maneuvering. Uh, you can do a simple, uh, you know, low bank turn and you will uh, feel some G-forces. Right, what's the average G-force a pilot uh, feels when they're in their plane? Well, most uh, large airplanes, uh, you know, if you experience two, two and a half Gs, that's probably the limit. Yeah. Uh, modern high performance uh, fighter type aircraft uh, can experience uh, six, seven, eight, nine Gs. And you black out at what, what G-force? Well, uh, you try not to black out. Yeah. Uh, but, but we've got flight suits that help with that now. Well, we have NIG protection as part of right. the air crew personal protection. But at, at what uh, G-force would you, uh, well, if you didn't have those protections, what, what, what G-force would you start to pass out? Well, it depends on the individual. And number one, it's their physiology, their height, their weight, their, their personal conditioning. Uh, and there's maneuvers that uh, air crew members do. Um, it's called the M1 maneuver, where you try and constrict your legs, your lower extremities, to keep the blood from rushing from your brain to the lower part of your body, which the G-force naturally tends to try and do. Right. So uh, it, it's a function of the individual. Okay, terrific answer. So, Greg, the general has won three out of three questions. What has he won for uh, playing the game today? Well, for this amazing set of answers, general, we have a set of four Dayton VA industrial strength chip clips designed by NASA's aerospace engineers to keep your snacks fresh at home or whenever or wherever you may be traveling in the near future. Compliments of the dates in VA. Well, terrific. Thank you very much. Yes, they're, uh, they're prized possessions around here, I'll tell you. So uh, we're going to take a quick break now. Uh, when we come back, we'll uh, hear more from Lieutenant General Dick Reynolds and about what he's doing in the Dayton area these days. My name is Corporal Bradley Joseph Seitz. Jerry Reed. Kate Weber. These are real veterans facing a real challenge. I have PTSD. And I have PTSD. I have PTSD. 
Post-traumatic stress disorder can happen to anyone. I was still in a war zone in my mind. But treatment can turn your life around. Treatment has really saved my life. To learn about PTSD and how treatment can help you, call your local VA medical center or visit ptsd.va.gov. And we're back with Air Force veteran, Lieutenant General, retired Dick Reynolds. General, um, recently we had Chris Stanley here uh, as a guest. He was you know, with the Fisher Houses, and um, he was telling us about the great service and work that they do. Uh, tell us a little bit about how you've been involved with the Fisher Houses. Well, it started with my wife of uh, now almost 51 years, Joni Reynolds. Uh, she has served as a uh, board member of Fisher Nightingale Houses Incorporated. That's the organization that Chris Stanley is executive director for, for uh, over 20 years and has been one of the key uh, planners and executors of their annual fundraising event, which is called the All-American Evening. Uh, that's scheduled for uh, August 13th of uh, this year. We'll be at the Dayton Arcade. Um, Joni uh, encouraged me when uh, Wright Patterson uh, decided it needed a second Fisher House in the 2007 time frame uh, to get involved in the fundraising, and I did that. Uh, we launched a campaign on the 17th of December 2007 with the objective of raising over a million dollars, which is a requirement of the Mothership Fisher Foundation in Baltimore uh, to get a house built, generally the community has got to raise roughly 20% of the total cost. And we did that uh, between 17 December 2007 and uh, I believe it was uh, April 24th, uh, 2011, when we cut the ribbon on the new Fisher House. We raised the money, the house was built, and the ribbon cutting was uh, in April of uh, 2011. And um, that was really my first fundraising experience. I'd never had any opportunity, uh, and, and of course, as a government employee, a military member, you're not legally allowed to fundraise. So in retirement, right, right. Uh, that was something that uh, you know I came to do, and actually wound up doing a good bit of for a, a large number of organizations. But that got me involved uh, directly with fundraising, and the committee that uh, we formed, um, you know, for that exercise, actually came into play in 2015 when a, uh, a local uh, philanthropist, uh, a man that, uh, you know, with a big heart and great intentions, uh, literally called me up and, uh, uh, and, and asked me how he could help a veteran. Uh, that's how he phrased it. He said, it's time uh, for me to help a veteran. And you said, I know how you can help a bunch of veterans. Well, I did. And, and I, he wanted a, a range of ideas. And I sat down about a month later with, uh, with him and his uh, his spouse and uh, his brother, and uh, went through options, okay, how, what he could do with his philanthropy that would uh, directly impact a veteran. And uh, of course, Fisher House was on the list. Uh, before I did that, I went up to the VA and uh, met Glenn Costi, the director. I met Kim Frisco, the then public affairs officer. And uh, I, you know, asked about their need for a compassionate care facility. Uh, they had the hospitality house at the time, mm -hmm. uh, which was, uh, was a lodging facility that was used under different rules than the Fisher House, but uh, it didn't meet the needs of the Dayton VA Medical Center. So uh, in presenting uh, you know, that as an option to this uh, potential donor, um, 
they grabbed onto it very quickly and uh, within a matter of weeks uh, basically wrote a check for one point zero seven five million dollars as uh, a lead gift which was sufficient to get the VA uh, rather the, the Fisher Foundation in Baltimore to put the Dayton VA on the list and uh, long story short um, they asked us to get some community skin in the game I, I asked them to define that and they said we'll go out and raise another half million dollars uh, to add to the uh, you know to our gift and uh, every penny counts yeah and so basically uh, we got that crew that raised the million dollars for the second right Pat Fisher house sure. back together added to it and we wound up raising another uh, over nine hundred thousand dollars and that became uh, uh, the basis for that house we cut the ribbon on that house on the uh, 7th of November uh, 2018 13 bedrooms 13,500 square feet I'm sorry 16 bedrooms 17 bathrooms 13,500 square feet Wow, that's quite amazing general if I could ask you what are you doing these days to help tell the story of the Air Force in the Dayton area well, uh, that's kind of a broad question. Uh, I'm involved in a number of things that have to do with veterans. Um, okay. I'm a founding director and uh, the uh, a foundation secretary for what's called the National Department of Veterans Affairs History Center, which uh, Dayton competed for uh, back in uh, 2016, uh, won, and uh, we're in the process of uh, trying to make that real. Uh, We've uh, stood up a foundation, uh, we've engaged uh, some fundraising professional support, and uh, we're going down a path to uh, raise what could be as much as $20 million or more to get that uh, facility built. That has to do with the VA, the history of the Department of Veterans Affairs, right. the history of VA medicine, the history of VA benefits, and the history of VA cemeteries. And currently we have the archive that's just uh, recently been developed and located there. That's at exactly, that's it, okay. And yeah, we're, that's, that's where we are right now. Right. But the right. future is actually refurbishing or uh, restoring the old headquarters building, correct? Right, building 129 and 116 will be... Right. Uh, we're, we've actually, they've repurposed those, they've stabilized them, they're actually, uh, one of them is occupied and the history program is at work, but it, there's a lot of renovation and rework and, and rebuilding that has to ensue uh, to uh, achieve the vision of the uh, National Department of Veterans Affairs History Center. So that's, that's one project. Okay. Um, I'm uh, Emeritus Trustee of the uh, Air Force Museum Foundation. I've served my legal limit uh, of nine years on the uh, Board of Managers and then Board of Trustees. Um, today, I'm very much involved in the search for the next CEO, the next Chief Executive Officer. Uh, Mike Imhoff, who was uh, Chief Executive Officer from uh, 2014 until just this last January 31st, uh, has retired. Uh, Mike did a tremendous job in that role and we're out searching for his replacement. In fact, I have a meeting this afternoon with a search firm that has uh, found us a stable of candidates and we're going to start yeah. interviewing and hopefully make a selection. Well, great. Uh, Tell us a little bit about that Hangar 4 project. Uh, the Hangar 4 project was uh, conceived, uh, the actual uh, 
requirement was laid down in 2007. Uh, I joined the foundation uh, that year as a, uh, a member of the Board of Managers, which we now call the Board of Trustees. And um, we hired a, a chief development officer. We laid down a fundraising campaign. And between uh, November 2008 and October 2013, uh, we went out and uh, raised the money to build the fourth uh, building. Uh, that total that has been gifted to the Air Force from the foundation uh, is uh, over $40 million. And, and by the way, uh, there's a misconception that those museum buildings are all funded by the government. Oh, They're no. not. They're funded by uh, private money. Uh, money that's raised by the foundation, gifted to the Air Force. Uh, in the case of the fourth building, that money was uh, gifted to the Air Force, uh, was turned over to the Army Corps of Engineers, and they hired Turner Construction. Uh, went to work in 2014, and uh, we cut the ribbon on the fourth building, uh, the four galleries in the fourth building on the uh, 8th of June, 2016. Right, yeah, that is, that's a great misconception to uh, actually address because you're right, everyone thinks that that's paid by the Air Force, but uh, each one of those buildings are, are funded privately, maintained privately, operated privately. No, no, they're, they're, once they are built, uh, you know, they are deeded to the Air Force and they become Air Force property, and then they are maintained by the uh, uh, United States Air Force, okay? Uh, the operations and maintenance. Uh, the museum operates on a budget, an appropriated funds budget of a, approximately 15 million a year and that pays for you know heat light power, building maintenance, uh, it pays for the museum function, operations, uh, you know restoration, curation, management, research, all the functions that make it the world-class museum that it is. Right, absolutely. Um, so Tell us a little bit more about what's going to be in this hangar that we're talking about, Hangar 4. Well, uh, there are four galleries, and they're already in there, okay? Uh, they, they were populated uh, before the museum uh, cut the ribbon uh, on, on uh, June 8th, uh, 2016. Uh, there is the presidential collection, uh, which are the Air Force One aircraft, four major Air Force One aircraft, including SAM 26000, which we called the Kennedy Airplane. It's the airplane there that uh, brought uh, John Kennedy's remains from Dallas um, back to Washington, D.C. in November uh, uh, 1963. It also took Henry Kissinger to China. It had a long distinguished service in the fleet of Air Force Ones. Uh, we have uh, the airplane it replaced. We have uh, Dwight Eisenhower's uh, Columbine. We have uh, Harry Truman's uh, Independence, and we have Franklin D. Roosevelt's Sacred Cow. So that's the presidential collection. We have uh, the space collection. We have a mock-up of the space shuttle, which the front of which is an actual uh, space shuttle cr crew trainer that trained all the air crews uh, during the space shuttle program uh, and all the other space artifacts. Uh, we have the airlift uh, fleet, okay, including uh, the Hanoi taxi, the C-141, that brought the uh, POWs from Hanoi back to uh, the United States in uh, uh, February of, uh, uh, of 1973. And then we have the research and development collection, which are all the, uh, the very unique test uh, and the prototype airplanes that uh, over time 
either resulted in or did not result in actual airplanes that went into production and became part of the Air Force fleet. And the centerpiece of that is the XB-770 Valkyrie, uh, one of the, the two airplanes that were built. Mm -hmm. uh, that was a Mach 3, uh, 70,000 feet uh, altitude uh, supersonic bomber. Right. Where do you get these aircraft? Uh, I, I know there's multiple sources, but especially after something's gone out of commission and... I, I would think some have been sold for scrap and you had to re, uh, acquire them back? Well, that may have played out in, in some circumstances, but for the most part, when an airplane is, is taken out of service, uh, it, uh, you know, the museum is kind of first in line uh, to display it if there is not one already in the collection. But, but collecting those initial aircraft and the historic aircraft. Yeah. Uh, how how did how did that happen? How did you well, guys? Well, a lot of them this? a lot of them were recovered from uh, you know uh, various places, um, <laughs> and it's interesting that the National Museum of the United States Air Force has on its books, uh, you know, its its legal ownership, you know, all the airplanes that are out there that the Air Force has purchased. Uh, that are Air Force property, some of which are in the boneyard at uh, Davis Monthan Air Force Base. Some are on pylons out in front of the, you know, the VFW or the American Legion in uh, some city out in, uh, you know, uh, in a rural area. And so the Air Force Museum now owns those aircraft. Uh, it always has, and that's kind of a misconception. Yeah, yeah it has uh, inside the walls and on display in the museum proper. It has 360 major exhibits, airplanes and missiles, but there are thousands more that it has ownership of uh, really across, uh, across the country, in some cases across the world. Great. Well, I know you're familiar firsthand with quite a few of those aircraft out there in the museum. Okay. Um, but uh, tell us, you know, I have to say, I think you're our very first Academy grad that we've interviewed for this podcast. Uh, tell us a little bit about um, what led you to the military? What inspired you to go to the Air Force and, uh, and actually go to the Academy, uh, you know, and, yeah. and started a career in the Air Force? Well, I came from a family um, didn't have a strong military tradition. I grew up in a little town of Aberdeen, Washington, on the west coast of uh, Washington State, the foot of the rainforest. Uh, my dad had been a World War II veteran, and by the way, he was a POW from the Battle of the Bulge. My grandfather had been a, uh, a POW from uh, World War One, but nobody in my family had served other than in, in wartime. Uh, my dad did have a, a dear friend uh, who, you know, was, a, of course, a friend of mine uh, who was a National Guardsman, and I think my first awareness of the military and of uniforms and, you know, some of the accoutrement that goes with uh, military service was from, uh, from that relationship. Um, but probably most importantly, I was a Sputnik kid. I was inspired by uh, the space race in the late 50s and, and 60s. I became enamored with uh, things like the X-15, the flights that occurred at uh, Edwards Air Force Base uh, in, in the 1960s. And um, I guess my interest naturally gravitated to, uh, uh, to math and science in school, uh, although I got pretty good grades across the board. Uh, at some point I decided I wanted to do two things in my life. Number one, I wanted to be an a engineer and uh, sort of targeted being an aeronautical engineer and then a pilot. 
And uh, that naturally kind of turned my focus to the Air Force Academy. I applied uh, in uh, 1965 and 66 and was accepted in the class of 1971. We entered in June of uh, 1967 and uh, graduated on the 9th of June of uh, 1971. I have a couple of distinctions uh, in that uh, trajectory. Um, Number one, I, I was the first member of my class to uh, go home on emergency leave. Uh, three days after I arrived at the academy, my mother died suddenly. Oh, so sad. I had to go back to Aberdeen for, for her funeral. And um, when it was all said and done, uh, after a 34-year career, I was the last member of my class on uh, active duty, uh, kind of the last man standing, continuous Air Force active duty. I had a classmate that served in the Navy as a physician, I think who served longer, but uh, as far as Air Force continuous active duty, yeah. I was the last man standing. And I guess I'd mention the other thing that happened. I had a blind date, um, I want to say 52 years ago tomorrow on the first Earth Day celebration oh, wow. with a, a young lady. And um, we dated for a while. I, I loaned her my car. I bought a car when I was a senior. You could, you could buy a car when you're a senior, and uh, uh, you know, I wasn't driving it during the week, and uh, she, uh, unfortunately, she wrecked it, oh. and uh, I was crushed. I mean, I was absolutely heartbroken, and um, long story short is that uh, girlfriend and I celebrated our 50th wedding anniversary last <laughs> July 31st. Congratulations, <laughs> yeah. Wasn't, wasn't enough of a reason to break up. That's yeah. good news. That's good news. <laughs> Well, it's obvious that you've been on the cutting edge of aviation throughout your entire Air Force career. You know, being a commander at the Air Force Test Center out at Edwards, um, you know, being part of uh, the weapons procurement system in the Pentagon. Um, what did you find most exciting about all this? Well, it was always a thrill. And, and my time as a pilot spanned from being a, a training command instructor pilot in the T-38, the supersonic trainer, I went from there to strategic bombers uh, to the left seat of the B-52 and then into test pilot school and that got me into the research and development, uh, test and evaluation part of, uh, part of the Air Force and that led to uh, program management and, uh, and I had three tours at Edwards, I had three tours at Wright-Patterson, you mentioned some of the specific jobs that I had. And uh, it was always a thrill to fly different airplanes. It was always a thrill to be uh, involved in, in the cutting-edge technology. Uh, it was a thrill to have, uh, I guess, all the secrets in my brain of, uh, you know, what was uh, not revealed to the public that was uh, going on. But I will tell you, Scott, the thing that, you know, I look back on, and this has been true for many, many years, is uh, the people I got to work with. You know, I don't see the airplanes. I don't, uh, I mean, I remember the experiences and the visceral thrills, but I, you know, what uh, lives, I think, in most prominently in my heart and mind are the faces of the people and the great people that I served with and their service and sacrifice, the things that they did uh, to make, uh, you know, the organizations that I was in and sometimes had the opportunity to lead to make those organizations successful. And that, uh, you know, that's probably most meaningful to me today. And it really has been for, for many years. I've, I've said this, I think I said it when I, you know, stood in the museum on the 
uh, you know, the 30th of June, uh, 2005, and mustered out. I mean, that was one of the comments that I made, because I see that long line of faces. Well, General, what led you to settle here in Dayton? Well, uh, three things. And I talked about this uh, last uh, October 7th when I was honored to receive that uh, Citizens Legion of Honor Award. Um, my youngest daughter, Tori, who is uh, today a businesswoman in downtown Dayton, she owns uh, Speakeasy Yoga in the cannery. Um, she was going to be a, a senior in uh, Beaver Creek High School uh, a year after we retired. Um, my mother-in-law and father-in-law, uh, my father-in-law was uh, retired uh, Chief Ma uh, uh, Master Chief Petty Officer Tom Cunningham. Uh, they had moved to Dayton a year after we first got here. Joni and I arrived here from the, on our first assignment in 1987 after graduating from the Navy War College. They moved here in 1988, and they stayed, and we left, came back, left, and came back. So they were living here, and uh, they were in their, you know, their sundown years. They passed away at uh, age 91 and 93. Um, and are buried at the VA cemetery. Uh, so that was a strong pull to keep us here because they weren't going anywhere. And we had their, uh, you know, uh, two of their three grandchildren, uh, which, uh, you know, we wanted them to be close to. And then I, I'd say the third thing was uh, the uh, local community. Um, I took command of Aeronautical Systems Center on my third tour here in uh, late June of uh, 2001, and uh, you know, just a few months later we had 9-11. And that pulled us very close to the community. Uh, there were, of course, if you remember the tension and the fear and the anxiety that right. uh, attended that event. Absolutely. I mean, culturally and socially and politically and economically, it had a tremendous impact. And that, that got us uh, a lot of interaction that we might not otherwise would have had. Yeah, there was a huge resurgence of patriotism Correct. across the nation, especially in the, in the public, Correct. where you just didn't see that before. Correct. And, and a great appreciation for the military that served. Yeah, mm -hmm. exactly right, Scott. Uh, the other aspect occurred a few years later, and that was the Centennial of Flight, the local inventing flight celebration. Right which was, uh, I remember it as about two and a half months from uh, early May, which we did a big event at the base, to uh, the 20th of July, where we had a concluding ceremony on the grave of, uh, of uh, Orville and Wilbur Wright at Woodland Cemetery, uh, where I got to speak, standing next to John Glenn on my right and uh, Neil Armstrong on my left, uh, that whole event got us a lot of uh, interaction with the local community. And two years after that, when we, uh, you know, elected to retire and take off our uniform, uh, the community had really wrapped their arms around us and made it very easy. It was very welcoming to us to stay in the local area. And we did. And it's not that we didn't have the opportunity uh, to go elsewhere and do other things, but it just uh, turned out that those forces at work uh, separately and together, uh, you know, caused us to be here now, uh, going on 18 years. And that's great for us, for our area. Yeah. 
to have you here. We're going to take another break right now. And when we come back, we're going to hear more of General Reynolds' story. Our veterans put everything on the line to protect our freedom. We may never be able to repay them for their sacrifice, but we can show them just how much we appreciate all they've done. Every day, hundreds of people just like you volunteer to help our veterans. You can help by simply sharing your time, lending a warm smile, a supportive hand, or a sympathetic ear to someone who needs it. Everyone can do something to make our veterans know how much we appreciate their service. What will you do? And welcome back. General Reynolds, if you would, please tell our listeners about your experience with the Dayton VA. Well, uh, I was aware of the VA, of course, during my time here, and my awareness grew over time, and it uh, sort of peaked when uh, I came up on retirement, and of course, when you retire from the military in the local area, you uh, process at the VA. Uh, I had been... Um, Involved in a, a tragic aircraft accident uh, as a 34-year-old major at Edwards. Um, I was rendered a paraplegic and uh, had to learn to walk again. And, of course, that involved a whole lot of uh, medical procedure over the years. Uh, luckily, I was able to, uh, you know, to beat that injury and stay on active duty. But uh, my status, uh, you know, was evaluated as a, uh, a disabled American veteran. Uh, by the VA, and um, so I, I, you know, took some of my medical care. I do get some of my uh, medical support uh, from the VA today. Uh, I also stayed close to the Wright-Patterson Air Force Base Medical Center uh, because, number one, I knew the people there. It had been under my command when I was uh, on active duty. And uh, over time, when I became Medicare uh, eligible at age 65, I... Uh, you know, transition to my care uh, to the local community. And um, I won't go into any detail, more detail about my uh, medical challenges, but uh, I've gotten great care from all places. Uh, I was up uh, at the, uh, the VA um, a week ago Wednesday getting my, uh, my second COVID booster. And uh, I, uh, you know, I maintain uh, a cadence of... Uh, you know, supply and care from the VA, and uh, for that I'm very grateful. And so, as you said, you're a retiree. Uh, you have the medical benefits through uh, Tricare, uh, and yet you still choose to use uh, some some of, get some of your care through the VA. Why is that? Uh, well, because it's availability. I mean, I I have a uh, as a veteran, I have access to that care. I have a, a high regard for the quality of care. In uh, you know recent years, having gotten to know the VA staff uh, in, in some detail, and um, you know up to and including Mark Murdoch, the, the current director who I've worked with, um, I, I just I have a appreciation for it, and uh, you know I'm I'm uh, I'm a believer in the VA system, and I'm really invested uh, in the Dayton VA Medical Center from my Fisher House experience, and now the work that I'm doing on the National uh, VA History Center. So uh, you are a retiree. Uh, you get some of your care through TRICARE. You also get some of the uh, care through VA. Uh, do you employ the new technology, such as My Healthy Vet and online scheduling and all the other apps that are available right now? 
Absolutely. I, now, I, you say all the other apps. I don't know if I use all of them, but I... Oh, no, I don't I know do anybody use, that does. There's a lot of them out yeah, there. <laughs> yeah. I do use my healthy vat, and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm very aware of uh, the cyberspace presence of the VA, mm -hmm. and I'm also aware of the VA's efforts to, uh, to modernize and improve and, you know, uh, increase the user-friendliness of that. Uh, because of, uh, you know, sometimes the complexity of, of uh, cyberspace access. Right, right. And do you find it convenient? Have you found uh, it useful? Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I had an appointment, as a matter of fact, just uh, the day before yesterday with my uh, pharmacist from my medical team. And uh, it was amazing for me, uh, first time I've ever done that, with a video uh, call with the pharmacist to go through all my drugs, uh, all my all my yeah. prescriptions, and find out uh, what I'm taking, what needs to be adjusted, what needs to be removed, added, et cetera. And sure. it was it was fantastic. Have you had similar experiences? Sure. And let me qualify my statement. I have access to the Wright Patterson Medical Center through their portal. I have access to Kettering Health through their portal. I have access to. Premier Health for their portal, and I'm a, a patient at the Cleveland Clinic, so I use their portal. I use them all. Uh, probably I use Kettering the least, maybe Right Path the least, but uh, Premier and uh, my healthy vet and Cleveland Clinic I am using on a regular basis, and uh, so I can contrast, you know, and they are different in each in their own way. Uh, Kettering, um, Premier, and um, Cleveland Clinic are somewhat similar, but uh, I can uh, tell you that uh, they're all good and they're all very useful. They do all require an investment in learning, but uh, they are a great way to... Uh, but you find them relatively intuitive as well, correct? Uh, true, yeah. I, a lot of effort has been made to make them intuitive, and uh, I commend the VA for that. Well, terrific. Well, General, we thank you for your time. Uh, we've been talking to Air Force veteran, retired Lieutenant General, uh, Dick Reynolds, we truly enjoy hearing stories from veterans like you. Uh, yours has been a fantastic story. Thanks again for sharing your time with us today. Well, thank you. It's my honor, Scott. You know, Greg, not too long ago, I went to see my primary care physician about some shoulder pain I was suffering from. Yeah, Scott, tell me more. Well, after an x-ray and an MRI, uh, you know, they had found that it had torn a rotator cuff uh, muscle. And fortunately, uh, it was not bad enough that it warranted surgery, uh, but the pain was still unbearable. And my mobility had been severely limited because of the injury. I could not put my arm over my head or behind my back. It, I'm telling you, it was killing me. That's when my doc sent me to receive physical therapy at the Dayton VA Medical Center. I thought, uh, this is going to do me any good? How? I've torn a muscle. How is exercising an injury going to make me feel better? Well, the therapist at the Dayton VA put me to work with stretching and strengthening exercises to put me back on the road to recovery. I didn't know that physical therapy, of all things, uh, could actually help movement restorement and uh, help with the function if you are disabled or injured in a disease. Uh, if you're living with or recovering from an injury, illness, or chronic condition that limits your mobility and independence, the Dayton VA can help. Their physical, occupational, and movement therapists combine therapeutic exercise, consulting, education, and training to help you improve your health and quality of life. Services at the Dayton VA include pain relief and joint mobilization, 
movement and exercise therapies to improve your strength, endurance, balance, and coordination, mobility assessment and training with wheelchairs, scooters, and walking devices, life skill training and activities to help you maintain the highest level of independence and functionality, aquatic therapy to manage chronic pain, and evaluation and treatment for a wide range of medical, orthopedic, psychological, and neurological conditions. These services are available at the Dayton VA Medical Center campus, as well as the Middletown and Springfield C-Box. If you're in pain and ready for treatment, contact your primary care provider today for a referral. You won't be sorry you did. Once again, we want to thank our special guest, retired Air Force Lieutenant General Dick Reynolds, for taking time to tell us his story and to share his experience with the Dayton VA Medical Center. We want to say thanks again to our special guests for taking time today to share their story. We truly enjoy hearing stories from veterans from across the region and learning more about how they found care through the Dayton VA Medical Center. And as always, we want to thank our listeners for joining us and remind them if they are a veteran and are not enrolled, to enroll with the Veterans Health Administration to receive health care benefits through the Dayton VA Medical Center. It's easy and it doesn't cost a thing. You just need to be a veteran. The simplest way to start enrollment is to call our Enrollment and Eligibility Office at 937-268-6511, extension 4105. They can schedule an appointment for you to come to the Dayton campus or help make an appointment at one of the surrounding community-based outpatient clinics located at Springfield, Richmond, Lima, and Middletown. Again, that number is 937-268-6511, extension 4105. Veterans may also enroll by visiting www.choose.va.gov slash health. While there, you can choose from applying online or by phone or by mail. It's just that simple, really. As I said before, it doesn't cost a thing to apply. So what are you waiting for? Call us today. Or if you know of a veteran who is not enrolled, have them call to start taking advantage of this benefit. If you're a veteran, it's your VA. Sign up today. Join us again for another episode of My VA Dayton with the Dayton VA Medical Center. Our episodes drop the 1st and 15th of each month. I'm Scott Lease with your co-host, Greg Tucker. Thanks again for listening to My VA Dayton.